Philippians 1. We'll read from verse 12 through verse 21. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful that you are unchanging and that you are um, the one constant in our lives, God, that are constantly changing. We're grateful, Father, that what you have been, you will always be, that there is no uh, increase or diminishing in you in any capacity or in any, any realm, any area of your existence, any characteristic you are constant. And Father, we are grateful for the, um, the confidence that we can have because of that. The hope that we have that as you've been gracious to us in the past, you'll be gracious to us in the future as we've just sung about. Father, we pray that you would continue to help us as we walk through Philippians and that you would... Encourage our hearts and convict us by the things we see in the Apostle Paul and that he says to the Philippians. And God, is, you've preserved it for us that, that you're saying to us. God, help us to have the confidence that Paul had and to have the joy that he had. because Not because our circumstances are exactly the same as his or that we have the same constitution that he has, but but because we have the same God that he had. God, we ask you to come alongside us and help us tonight and tomorrow and each day after in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we'll be looking particularly at the second half of verse 18 through verse 20. I believe that there is a period in the middle of verse 18 where Paul has said, and this I rejoice. Stop. Yes, and I will rejoice. And I do think that there is a, a, a shift that takes place, even though it's within the same paragraph. And if you look, I think you'll readily see 
Other than the, the words, verse 19, I know. The verb there, know. I presently know. Every other verb from I will rejoice at the end of verse 18 into verse 20, every one of those is future. And he hasn't been talking about the future previous to that. So there's a shift that takes place. He tells us about the circumstances he's, circumstances he has been enduring and was presently enduring as he writes. And then he shifts and says, but whatever the future holds, I will rejoice in that also. So there is this, this shift that takes place. And uh, that's why I'm, I'm making this break in verse 18. And the New American Standard translators recognize that also putting the period there in that verse and starting a new sentence. As we pick this idea up here, um, Paul continues to describe not only what he has endured, but what he possibly will endure. And he tells us how he has responded and how he plans to respond, how he will respond. Paul wants the Philippians to know the joy that he knows. And he wants us to know that joy also. He has said in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. He has enjoyed a participation, a fellowship in the gospel with these Philippians, possibly in a way that he has not enjoyed with any other church. There's a close relationship that he has with them. They have uh, enabled him to go to other places and share the gospel, and they've sent money to help him. They've sent a gift to him here as he's in prison. So they've helped him a number of times, and their help is not just a friendship because you know they have a lot of things in common, personalities, they hit it off together kind of thing. It's not that. It's the gospel. Paul has been gripped by the gospel. The Philippians have been gripped by the gospel, and they want to participate in the gospel and his labors in the gospel. Uh, you'll remember he, he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians and talks about how the churches of Macedonia, of which... Philippians is a leading church in Macedonia, how they begged for the privilege of giving out of their poverty. So that's these people. So there's been this joint participation and fellowship. He describes that a bit in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 that I just read. I want to share my joy with you. I want you to share your joy with me. Um, he has prayed for the Philippians. He speaks here in chapter 1, verse 19 of their prayers for him. And so there's this mutual participation and fellowship around the gospel. Now, as Paul recounts the joy that he has and his rejoicing, if all we knew about him was that he's a really joyful fella, you know, his disposition is just a happy fella, it wouldn't mean that much to us. But because we do know from where he's writing and the situations that he's endured as he writes, it ought to cause us to lean forward a little bit and pay attention. How does this guy speak of rejoicing when he's been wrongly imprisoned? For years, he's chained to a guard around the clock. He's been beaten and tortured in so many ways, stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked, even on the way to Rome. I mean, all the things he's endured, how can he be joyful? And I want you to know my joy. 
Well, that ought to cause us to pay attention and say, tell us about that, Paul, because I want to know that also. Paul tells us of a joy that is enduring, that does not have to shift with the winds of change. It is a joy that he speaks of in verse 12 through his circumstances. And he is joyful in these circumstances of imprisonment, etc. Because, as he says in verse 12, his circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. It is a joy in verses 15 and following, even with difficult people who are preaching Christ, hoping to do him harm, hoping to cause him distress. I mean, talk about personal attacks. But he's joyful in that. He says pointedly about that in verse 18, in this I rejoice, because even though they preach with wrong motives and hope to cause him distress, Christ is still being proclaimed. So I rejoice. And now, it's almost as if in the middle of verse 18, someone has said, okay, I understand, Paul, in your circumstances and with those people who are causing you difficulty, you have rejoiced. But what does the future hold? I mean, you're still in jail. You're waiting for Nero's verdict. You don't know for certain if you'll live or die. What if it's death? What if you remain in jail until you die of old age or sickness or whatever? Whatever's ahead of you, Paul, what's next? How are you going to deal with all that? And he tells us, yes, and I will rejoice. He speaks with such certainty. Paul, how can you say that? In verses 19 through 23, which is much further than we're going tonight, we'll just get to the end of verse 20. But from 19 through verse 23, he speaks of life and death. In verse 20, he speaks of Christ being exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he, he continues to develop that idea and what living would mean and what dying would mean. But among those ideas... He speaks of of living as being fruitful for the Philippians and for the church, but death being gained because he'll be with Christ. But among those ideas is also this. Living for Paul has been suffering. And so if I continue to live, it probably means more suffering. And if I die, well, that's death in whatever form that comes. And yet, he says very pointedly, I will rejoice. Now, As you read verses 19 and following, if you don't read carefully and and read a little bit further, you might get the idea that Paul's saying something like this. Whether I live or die, I'm going to rejoice, but I know I'm going to live and be released. Well, if that's what he's saying, then I'm going to rejoice whether I live or die doesn't hold as much weight, does it? But that's not, I don't think that's what he's saying. Some people think that is exactly what he's saying here. And if all you read is, is, if you stop with this section, I think you can come to that conclusion pretty easily. In verses 25 and 26, he says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Sounds like I understand what's happening now and I see what's going to occur. But then you keep reading, and in chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, he's talking about sending Timothy to them, and he says, Therefore I hope to send him immediately, 
as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. That's his hope. But he's waiting to see how things are going with him before he sends Timothy. There's still some uncertainty. And so I believe what he's saying is that he has a growing conviction that he probably will be released. But he doesn't know that for certain. It's not as though God has revealed this to him. And it's obvious. It's, it's, it's assured. I'm going to be released. God had revealed to him that he would go to Rome and preach. In Acts chapter 23, verse 11. On the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Well, God doesn't tell him there how he's going to get to Rome or what condition he'll be in in Rome. But God does tell him, you're going to Rome and you're going to witness to me there. But I don't believe, based on what we read here, that God has told him the same thing about his release. He thinks the way things are going is this, but he's not certain. So, humanly speaking, he's awaiting Nero. Whatever that means. And however long that means. And yet, with the uncertainty that must come with that, there still are things that are certain. God is certain. And he says, I will rejoice. And so I hope that we will give full weight to his words when he boldly says that and not read them as if you know, we know he's going to be released. He doesn't know. So we can't read into it. Well, he, you know, obviously he's going to be released so he can rejoice. All right. So with that in mind, he makes the bold proclamation or assertion, I will rejoice. And then in verses 19 and 20, he tells us how he can say that. First, he will rejoice because of what he knows. See the link between the last part of verse 18 and the first part of verse 19. Yes, and I will rejoice for I know. It's not that I know that I'm going to be released, but I do know something. And this this connection, this link is important. I will rejoice for I know. Again, he's not saying that he will rejoice simply because he has a sunny disposition and he looks at everything through you know, rose-colored glasses and that's just the way he is. And he's not saying that he is, you know, has a strong will and by determination he's determined he's going to rejoice no matter how bad things get. He doesn't mean that. And it's not that he's simple-minded and he views the world you know, through a kind of feeble-mindedness that just doesn't really understand anything and so he's happy. It's not that. He sees everything as it is. As much as anybody can see. But beyond what he can see, he can say, I know. And because there are some things I know, I will rejoice. Even in front of the things that I don't know. It's what he knows that forms the basis of his rejoicing. Because I know, I will rejoice. We not only see here a connection between what Paul knows and Paul's rejoicing, but more broadly, I think we see a principle. And that is this. There's a connection between 
Christian experience and knowledge. I will rejoice experience because I know something, truth, doctrine. And the doctrine, the truth that he knows feeds or fuels the experience that he he, he has. I'll rejoice. So here's a particular Christian spiritual experience. Joy before hard circumstances. Joy when being personally attacked. Joy, even if it means more suffering or even if it means death. Joy. Why? Because I know something. There's this vital link between experience and doctrine. And his knowledge sustains his joy. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He speaks more along the lines of faith than of knowledge, but faith is, is based upon knowledge. If not, it's not really faith. It's, you know, it's something else. But because you know him and you believe him, because you know something of his character and his promises, and you believe those things about him and what he has said, how do you respond? Well, you respond by greatly rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Knowledge leads to a response, and that response is joy that you can't utter. Now, it is certainly possible to have knowledge that never results in joy or any other Christian experience. You can know a lot of stuff that you never live on. And I suppose that we all will always, until we get to heaven, have knowledge that outpaces our experience. You can have knowledge that doesn't result in Christian experience. But I don't see how you can have real Christian experience without having biblical knowledge. If it's not tied to biblical knowledge, if it's not tied to truth, then how can it really be spiritual Christian experience? And if that's the case, then we need to be careful that we don't separate those two ideas. Experience that is unlinked from knowledge is dangerous. It's it's zeal without knowledge. It's passion. But tied to what? But also, if those two ideas are linked together, then how important is it? Number one... To feed our fund of knowledge. (laughs) I need to know what the Bible says. I need to know what God says. I need to understand something about the character of God. And the promises of God. Then I need to live on that. Not just amassing knowledge. And and, swelling my head. But then putting feet to it. And because God said this. I will live this way. 
Because the promises of God say this, then I will respond to this kind of situation this way. And that's what Paul's doing. Imprisoned? You know, anybody who's not a believer looking in at Paul has to think he's lost his mind. You're rejoicing? Possible death, you're rejoicing? But he is. Because I know something. I know. What is it that he knows? Verse 18, the second half of verse 18 through the end of verse 20, I read as one big sentence. And it's full of dependent clauses and ideas. But if we can kind of boil it down to its essence, I think the main thrust of what he is saying is this. And he says some other things supporting that, but the main idea, I believe, is this. I will rejoice, for I know Christ will be exalted. He says more than that, but... The main idea, I believe, is that. I will rejoice, for I know Christ will be exalted. And that's the second thing I want to consider this evening. Rejoicing because Christ will be exalted. It is that knowledge that Christ will be exalted that causes Paul to rejoice. Now, if you think about what he's already said, and it's been a couple of weeks since we were there, but if you think about what he's already said, It's consistent, one with the other. In verse 18, the first half of verse 18, as he concludes and says that in this I rejoice, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about from verse 12 all the way through verse 18, where he's spoken of his imprisonment, his circumstances, which have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, his imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. The preaching, even the preaching that's done to cause him distress because Christ is proclaimed even in that. Do you see the common theme? In all of this suffering, in all of this distress, I still see where Christ is being proclaimed. The cause of Christ is moving forward. Christ is being exalted. And so I will rejoice in the future, whether in life or death, because I know in my body Christ will be exalted. And the knowledge of that gives him great joy. Christ is being exalted. I rejoice. Christ will be exalted. I will rejoice. What does he mean by that? Christ will be exalted. Uh, you, know, you could say, well, Christ is already exalted. If Paul's desire is to magnify Christ, in a sense, we could say Christ is magnified. You know, he's as big as he gets. You can't make him larger. But obviously, Paul doesn't mean that. He means that in his body, this body that could go to the executioner's block, Or this body that could continue to suffer as it suffered in the past. In this body, I want Christ to be exalted. So we could say exalted in Paul's experience. As Paul walks with the Lord, 
and responds to these challenges that come daily as Paul deals with an imprisonment that lingers on and on and on into four years, as Paul deals with surly guards, as Paul deals with people who over time might forget him, as Paul deals with all the things that come with his circumstances. As he walks with the Lord, Christ is exalted as he finds him faithful day by day, as he leans upon him and rejoices, finds reason in him to rejoice. But others are also seeing Christ exalted as they watch Paul. Paul, how do you respond to shipwreck? Paul, how do you respond to wrongful imprisonment? Paul, how do you respond to to the guards who are always there? How do you respond to the solitude? How do you respond to, to, you know, waiting and waiting and waiting and wondering, will this ever come to an end? How do you respond to the possibility that you are going to die at the hand of Nero? How do you respond to any of that, Paul? And they watch. And Paul can say, I rejoice because as they watch, they see Christ exalted in my body. How do they see that? What's in his responses? I mean, if Paul throws a temper tantrum and starts cussing some guard out, are they seeing Christ exalted? Well, no. But as they see him walking with the Lord, as they see him rejoicing in the Lord, as they hear him consistently pointing them to the joy that's in the Lord, they do see his responses and they see Christ exalted, whether they ever praise Christ or not. In my body, Christ will be exalted. And in this, I rejoice. If Paul's hope, if his joy were settled somewhere else, then surely... There would have been plenty of room to falter. But his joy was seated firmly upon Christ and settled there. His joy was unshakable. Christ will be exalted. That's my great desire. And since he will be exalted, I will rejoice. Now, in verses 19 and 20, particularly in verse 19, Paul speaks about this what he knows and the exaltation of Christ. And as he adds these clauses that kind of modify this and explain this, he says in verse 19 that this will turn out for my deliverance. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. What does he mean by deliverance? The word that he uses here is sometimes used of rescue from physical threats or harm. It's used that way in Acts chapter 7 and verse 25 where it speaks of Moses and how he thought that the Israelites understood that God was using him to deliver them. This is before he sends them Moses back after the 40 years in the wilderness. So as he attacks the guard and kills him, he thinks that his brothers understand God is using him to deliver them. Um, The passage says, he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. So that idea of physical rescue. There are some people who believe that that's what Paul means here. It would tend to be the same people who read the passage to understand that Paul fully expects to be released from prison. This is going to turn out for my deliverance. I'm not going to jail. I'm not going to remain in jail forever. And I'm not headed yet anyway to the executioner. 
The word that he uses is often translated as the word salvation, as in spiritual salvation. When Paul uses this word and trend in a spiritual salvation kind of way, um, he most generally means salvation from sin's power, from condemnation under God's wrath, and ultimately from physical and eternal death. So saved from sin and saved to God, the entire aspect of salvation. He can refer to different aspects within that realm of salvation, but that idea, full glorious salvation. So sometimes he uses the word and he looks back in a past way to describe God's activity in saving us from spiritual death. We see this, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved or delivered. In verse 8 of Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved or delivered through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Both of those looking back to God's activity, you were lost, God saved you. Sometimes He looks forward to salvation completed, resurrection, transformed body, everything consummated. For instance, in Romans 5, 9, he says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Here, I believe Paul is using salvation in a more present way. So he's not speaking of this is going to turn out For my deliverance or salvation in the sense of because this has occurred, God's going to save me from my sins. Paul's a Christian. Some people understand it to mean in this ultimate way of redemption, um, transformation of the body, looking forward to final salvation. But again, I think more of a present way. God is working in our rescue to save us now in a way that works itself out in daily living. If that makes sense, I'll try to um, demonstrate. In verse 19, he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. And I think a good question is, what is this? And in the context of this passage, this, I believe, is his imprisonment. And all that goes with that, the circumstances, the trial, the outcome, whether life or death, all of that. And in that context, what does salvation look like for Paul? Well, again, you could say, well, it's deliverance from all of that, but I don't think it's that. Put another way, what is the enemy from which he needs to be delivered? Is it the circumstances and the preachers? Well, I don't think it's all that. But in verse 20, he speaks of his confidence that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So my great joy and hope here is that Christ will be exalted in me, whether by life or death. What I want to avoid is the shame that would come if that didn't happen. In verses 19 and 20, his his deliverance, his salvation, is deliverance from the threat or temptation to despair. To be timid before Nero. 
to play the coward before this, the guards. I don't want to be put to shame. And I am confident I won't be put to shame, but I will boldly, even now as always, respond in a way so that Christ is exalted in my body. His great desire that Christ be exalted would turn into His great shame if Christ were not exalted because of the way that He responds. Because He doesn't say what He should say or He says something and shouldn't say. But He says here, He will rejoice because He knows Christ will be exalted knowing this will turn out for my deliverance. How will this deliverance come about? In verse 19, he speaks with such certainty that he will remain bold and that this will turn out for this kind of deliverance. And he identifies a couple of resources. The first, which he lists second, but I'm going to take it first, is the Spirit of Christ. The ESV speaks of the help of the Spirit. But the idea is the provision or the, the resource, which is, I think, a bit more specific. Here's the supply, the, the resource that the Spirit gives. The Spirit Himself could well be that resource, not separating the gift and the giver. But here's this, you could, you could translate it, rich supply or ample supply, abundant supply. The Spirit of Christ is going to amply supply me So Paul can be certain because of the rich supply of the Spirit or the rich supply of the grace of God given through His Spirit. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He tells the Philippians a similar thing in chapter 4 and verse 19 as he is speaking to them and how God will take care of them when he says, And my God will supply... All your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The same God that will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory is the same God that by his spirit will amply supply me in my need in prison before Nero or even if it is at the executioner's block. How will I know that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, that I won't be put to shame, but will be bold as I have in the past? It's because Christ's Spirit will amply supply me. There's a second resource that he points to, and that is to the Philippians through your prayers. He speaks here of the prayers of the Philippians or the supplications of the Philippians on his behalf. That is their specific entreaties to God for Paul. I know that you're praying for me. And as you pray for me, God is going to supply me by his spirit. This is an amazing statement. His certainty regarding his deliverance is tied to the Philippians prayers and the spirit's provision. If all we knew about prayer and the supply of the Spirit was in this verse, we could come to some wrong ideas. I mean, you could read the verse to, to get the idea that, that the supply of the Spirit is, is only through prayer. Like, we pray and that sends out the, Spirit's, the Spirit and His supply rather than the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. So we do know other things about it. 
besides what this verse says, but still Paul makes this bold assertion and he is not hesitant to, to put these two ideas together. I know you're praying for me and because you're praying for me, the spirit of Christ is going to amply supply me. And because he amply supplies me, I know this will turn out for my deliverance and I won't be put to shame in anything, but I will be bold and Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. What an amazing statement. And what great confidence he has in the prayers of God's people to reach the ear of God so that he will be supplied as he needs to be supplied. God will supply everything Paul needs. And he moves his people to pray that he would do just that. It's not as if God's unconcerned until his people pray. And then he's like, oh, I didn't see that. And so let me run help. But the same God who intends to supply his child moves the hearts of his people to cry out to him to do just that. And as they cry out, he's glad to answer and respond. And he supplies Paul, he supplies us to meet the difficulties we face in the Spirit. Joining knowledge to experience. Let me move on. The measure of his certainty of deliverance. In verse 20, he speaks of this deliverance in verse 19. But in verse 20, he says, this will be according to my earnest expectation and hope. And so there's a a measure set here, if you will. What will be the measure of this deliverance or of the supply of the Spirit? I'm not sure exactly which one this modifies, but what, what will be the measure of this? Well, it will be according to my earnest expectation and hope. Expectation translates a word that is, is picturesque. It's, it's two words joined together. And we do this in English also. We have you know, like the word extend. And then you have the word overextend. And you, you, know, you can see that in your mind. And it's picturesque. Two words put together. Well, here the word is the word for head and for, um, for a stretch. So it's the idea of stretching and looking. And you can see the idea of eager anticipation or of uh, longing in that word. My earnest expectation as I look. If you've ever agreed to meet someone like at a ball game, you may have found yourself doing this. Well, I'll meet you at the gate. Well, there's a bunch of people at the gate. And so you stretch and you look and you look for the person that you recognize. Oh, there they are. You, you know they're there, but I, I don't see them. And you extend yourself looking. So Paul says, I am earnestly expecting this. And then he adds to that, the word hope, which we've talked about a number of times. You know, it's not the kind of the, the worldly idea of hope, like yeah, just a wish. But again, it's the idea of an earnest expectation. Here's something that's going to be realized, but it hasn't been realized yet. But because God has said it will be realized, I have this earnest expectation, this hope, looking for and waiting for it to come about. So he takes two different words that express this idea of earnest 
expectantness and expectation and anticipation. And he, he puts them together and says, I'm looking for something earnestly. And the measure of this deliverance is going to be tied to that. According to my earnest expectation and hope. Now, I believe this is important because while it is through the Spirit's supply that He will be provided for so that He can meet all this with joy and say with confidence, I will rejoice. The fact that the Spirit will supply Him does not mean that it's easy. The fact that the Spirit will supply Him does not mean that Paul can you know, kind of put himself on autopilot and... and Check out and just think, you know, no matter what happens, the automatic response of my mouth is going to be the right thing. And the automatic response of my emotions is going to be the right thing. No. He still has to take the truth that he knows and live on it. He still has to receive the supply of the Spirit and exercise himself to producing the fruit of the Spirit. That that fruit would be produced in him rather than the deeds of the flesh. We see the same idea as he again takes his example and turns toward the Philippians in chapter 2 and verse 12 when he says to them, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What's he telling them to do? Well, the supply that you've been given, for it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, right? The supply that you've been given by God who's at work in you, Work it out. Put feet to it. Live it. And that's what Paul's doing. Amply supplied. And as he lives upon that truth and eagerly looks toward this goal of Christ being exalted above all else, that's what happens. And as he does this, as he works this boldness out in the face of death, tied to his earnest expectation and hope that Christ will be exalted in the supply of the Spirit, he says, I will not be put to shame in anything. You would think that there are a lot of people in the world who would look at Paul and think, what a shameful condition. And that guy had promise. Pharisee of the Pharisee. He used to run in circles, you know, with the leaders of, of Israel. He showed promise. Where is he now? Huh. In prison. Shameful. I'll not be put to shame in anything. There were those in Corinth who looked at Paul, saw his suffering, and thought, shameful. He must not be doing something right, because after all, this Christian life is victorious living, right? I'll not be put to shame in anything. I'll not deny the Lord. 
I will walk with Him through life or death. He will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. I'll not be put to shame in anything. But rather with boldness. The word boldness was a word that expressed a boldness of speech or freedom of speech, unfettered speech. And it came to be used of just boldness in, in every way. But its first idea was kind of this boldness in speech. But how, how applicable to his particular situation? My mouth won't be silenced. But neither am I going to utter things I shouldn't utter. Standing before Nero, how tempting it would be to change your tune if that means getting out of this place. But I know that now, even as always, what do you mean even as always, Paul? How many times has Paul been bold? How many times has the Spirit amply supplied him to be bold and not be put to shame so that Christ might be exalted? How many times, you know, he's, he's taken outside the city in stone and he gets up and he goes back into the city? In Jerusalem, when the crowd is incited against him and they're wanting to kill him and, and the Romans sweep in and, and, and take him away for his own protection as they carry him out, he says, let me address the crowd. Maybe I can help. And he doesn't help. He, he makes them matter. Before Felix. Before Herod. And now before Nero. And maybe again, before Nero, I know that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Well, what does this mean for the Philippians? And what does this mean for us? If, Paul, if Paul's joy is tied to him, not cowering in the face of difficulty, but living so that Christ will be exalted, and, and that's dependent upon the Spirit's supply and according to the measure of his expectation and hope that Christ will be exalted, you know, I'm looking. That's, that's my desire. Christ be exalted. I'm looking toward that. I'm hoping in that. I, uh, you know, that's, that's my anticipation. How hard are we looking? Do we expect to have the Christian experience we should have, the responses we should have, the boldness we should have, apart from the Spirit's supply and apart from the earnest expectation that Christ will be exalted? I mean, is that like the thing that you and I are living for or is that one of the things? You know, I... I want Christ to be exalted and I want my comfort. I want Christ to be exalted and I want that, that, that promotion. I want Christ to be exalted and this thing, you know, whatever this thing is. But we have this list of stuff, you know. There's a double-mindedness that wants Christ to be exalted while I also do this. So in, I want Christ to be exalted in this way. But Paul can say, whether by life or death... That's the thing, that Christ be exalted. There's a single-mindedness about Him. He, he doesn't have a divided heart. 
And because there's this single-mindedness, we see him responding as he does. Circumstances, people, life or death, whatever it is, I've been rejoicing, I'm going to keep rejoicing. Is it possible that we so often have our joy break down because there's a divided heart? Because I'm not looking for the exaltation of Christ in me, whether by life or by death. Whether people treat me nicely or not. Whether my circumstances are pleasing or really rotten. Doesn't really matter as long as Christ is exalted. I mentioned that Paul obviously has such a high value on prayer. So high that he, he puts those ideas together of the spirit supply and the Philippians prayers. And not just the individual Philippians, but really he's talking about the Philippian church. He's writing to them. You know, your prayers on my behalf, your, your entreaties on my behalf. Through that and the spirit supply, I know I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to be bold. Do you place that kind of value on prayer? It's easy, I think, to pray for something for a while and not see it happen the way we'd like for it to happen and lose some of our fervor. But Paul doesn't seem to have lost his fervor for prayer or his confidence in God working through prayer. At this point, we don't know exactly how long he's been in prison, but at least two years. He was in prison two years in Jerusalem or Caesarea before he's moved to Rome. So at least two years. Do you not think that the people have been praying for him for two years? And they continue to pray? Through your prayers? And the Spirit's supply, I know, I'll be delivered. Maybe one of the reasons that we sometimes cool in our prayer, in our zeal in prayer, is because we want to have a different definition of deliverance than Paul has. I want deliverance to look this way. <laughs> and so it's not really, God, your will be done as much as it is, God, I want you to do for me this But Paul isn't you know, dictating terms like it's got to be life, not death. And it's got to be life this way. His only real term, if you want to call it that, is this. Let Christ be exalted. God, don't let me be put to shame in anything regarding Christ and His gospel. Let Christ be exalted. And so... He looks to the Philippians, these partners in ministry, in the gospel. He says, I know that as you pray for me in that regard, the Spirit will supply me, and I won't be put to shame. Christ will be exalted.
one more. Paul obviously placed great confidence and hope in the sufficiency of God's grace. He expresses this confidence in God toward the Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 6. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Can Paul write to the Philippians and express this confidence toward God, work, God's work in them, and then turn around and say, Oh, Philippians, I'm so fearful. I, I'm so afraid this isn't going to work out. I, I'm so afraid I'm going to do this or that. or this is, you know, What kind of confidence would that be, Paul? You know, how can you be so confident of God's work in me if you're not so confident of God's work in you? But Paul says, I'm confident. Let me tell you about my confidence. God's going to do this. He's going to complete what he's begun. And by the way, that's what he's doing in me. He's kept me thus far. Ebenezer's we sang about. He's kept me thus far. And I trust he's going to continue to keep me. And now, as always, Christ will be exalted. He's done that so many times. I have every reason to believe he'll do it again. He's unchanging. His grace is unchanging. A couple of verses from Ephesians 3 and we'll be dismissed. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.